We don't have a whole lot of data yet on the booster shot. There's no warning signs that are out there, but there is concern. We haven't proven that there are not safety problems for the general population. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Fred and Bill, once again, uh, thanks for making the time to give our audience an update on what's happening. Uh, Fred, maybe um, turn to you uh, with an update uh, about some recent developments in Florida, and then Bill, maybe you can give us the global perspective. Well, in in Florida, um, where the Delta variant is tamping down a little bit, uh, but it's still uh, a serious problem. And we're at about uh, 45 per 100,000 statewide uh, with regards to daily cases. Uh, But a number of counties are still in the 100 uh, per 100,000 range. And our vaccination level is still very poor. Uh, There are certain areas where it's at 70, 71%, but there are other areas near us, unfortunately, where the vaccination rate is in the 25 to 33% range. And those, no surprise, are the areas that are having the highest levels of infection. And I actually looked at the levels of vaccination as compared to the level activity of infection and plotted percent vaccination versus uh, disease activity, new cases per day. And I got a a straight line with a correlation of 0.89 and a p-value of 0.005, indicating it's highly significant. The higher the vaccination rate, the lower the infection rate. So what it should be encouraging everyone to get vaccinated because that really will reduce the number of active cases. Now, the other change that's occurred is we now have a new Surgeon General Uh, and he doesn't believe in quarantining, and so he has just mandated that our schools are not allowed to quarantine children that are exposed to others that are infected, in addition to mandating that that the schools cannot mandate masks. What this means is that in our school systems, uh, this assures that virtually all children will become infected. When you said Surgeon General, you mean the Florida Surgeon General, not Correct, the, the Florida Surgeon General. As we've already commented in previous uh, discussions, you know, politics and, you know, other aspects play into the medical advice that people are getting. But I assume, Fred, the takeaway here at the very least is that vaccinations work and they keep people out of the hospital and they prevent deaths. Uh, Absolutely. And the other important concept I think we need to keep in mind is when you're trying to control an epidemic, you want a cluster of tools or a bundle of tools. So masks combined with some social distancing and avoiding uh, crowded small spaces combined with vaccination uh, and also a case-finding and isolating those that are infected and quarantining those that are exposed for a brief period all work together and could reduce the reproductive rate below one and further decrease the cases 
and in all parts of the United States. And Bill, I know you've been looking nationally and globally. Um, well, and I think as, as Fred says, that's one of the most important things is, is the concept of a defense in depth or a, a layered defense against against COVID, which means that in certain circumstances, not all those layers are going to be applied. But the more layers that you can apply, and when you have an option, choosing to apply a layer of the defense is going to reduce your individual risk. And when it's a society doing it, it's going to decrease the societal risk. But fortunately, and I, I say this, you know, I, I you know, hope is not a strategy, but I am hoping that, and I, it looks like the data is telling us that Globally, we may be over the delta curve, or not. I shouldn't say over, but at least we're we're cresting the we're cresting the peak. Um, the United States in the the last week, our cases are down um, a, about sixteen uh, percent. I mean, that's that's a huge drop. Now, again, remember, I've always said that this is a you can't look at this as a pandemic or even a national level epidemic. It is a you got to look at the regions that we're looking at. But regionally, it's cases are I mean, nationally, cases are down 16.7 percent. But the problem is we still have in the United States, we have case rates that range from a high of 122 per 100,000 in Alaska. I mean that is that's just a huge number, down to um, as as low as seven per hundred thousand in Puerto Rico. Um, as far as the, the the U.S. states go, the lowest is Connecticut at eighteen. Now put that in perspective. The CDC tells us that a high rate, that the highest rate of their the categories that they've they've told us for transmission is anything over about fourteen point four. Um, cases per 100,000 per day. The lowest state in the country is at 18. So by no means are we out of this, but I feel like things may be turning the corner. But looking outside of the United States, one of the most amazing things is if you remember just maybe two months ago, we were kind of talking about South America as a, as a disaster. And it's, it is a, a fear for us because there were so many cases that we were very much afraid that a um, uh, variant would emerge out of all of these cases and start to move up the spine of the, uh, the Andes and the Rockies to us. But no, um, cases are way down throughout. There are, there are a couple of pockets where they're still, still a little high, such as Ecuador. But in all of the major countries of South America, cases are down, getting pretty close to negligible levels, which is pretty amazing where you think of where we were just two months ago. Africa, the only country in Africa that's really having any significant uh, level is, is uh, South Africa. But even in South Africa, the levels are way down from, from where they were uh, even, even a month ago. But everywhere else in the world, uh, South Korea is flat. They're not at a tiny level, but they're flat. They're, they're certainly not increasing. Um, probably the most concerning area in the world right now, major in a major economically important area, is Singapore. Uh, Singapore has a steep uptrend, um, currently at 25 cases per 100,000 per day, a very significant level. You know, that brings you to you know, roughly double, what would, over double what would be considered a high level. Um, and Singapore just announced uh, today that they are going to you know, mandatory uh, no more than 50% of people in offices as they 
they start to put in some of this layered defense that we've talked about. Other than that, around the world, things are looking good. And so I'm, I'm very much heartened by the direction we're going. Yeah, another country that's really uh, turned the corner is India, which is down to a very low level. I think 2.7, 2.8 per 100,000. So uh, they've been, I, I, we aren't sure what happened, but they're doing better. Well, and, and its neighbor, Bangladesh, their levels, well, they had a lot more trouble because they have a very, very difficult infrastructure in Bangladesh is looking very good right now. The biggest area of the world that we're kind of maintaining some concern about is um, Eastern Europe and, and Ireland, which is Ireland is currently has the, the highest level in the uh, European Union. So uh, recent developments this week, announcements by the FDA, CDC, around a third vaccine or booster, plus some interesting data coming out of Johnson & Johnson and a second vaccine. And I think it'd be helpful maybe if you could put that in context for us. Um, I have not seen the raw data. I do understand that approximately two months after uh, the, the dose, there's some waning of, of immunity. And now J&J does feel that they should, that you should get a second dose. And uh, they're using the same, they're, they're repeating their same vaccine at six months and finding very high levels of protection when, when there's that booster. And they have applied for a booster uh, based on that data. Right. They say that they go up to an efficacy of 94% or greater, which puts it right in the almost exact range of the efficacy that we saw with the, uh, the, the two mRNA vaccines. But the other is that spreading it out by six months may in fact uh, in, enhance the durability. They feel that it may enhance the durability. Of course, we're not going to have any data on that until we're a good ways out from, from actually doing it. Um, but that could be a major uh, major benefit for the J&J while, while leaving in place the allowable indication of a single shot because one of the benefits of the J&J is just having a single shot and you can have a good degree of efficacy, which allows you to get to more difficult to serve populations. Yeah, it has a very nice niche, I think. And I thought this data was very exciting about the booster causing such uh, improvement in the efficacy reaching that of Moderna and Pfizer. And just as a reminder to the audience, because I know both of you focus not only on the efficacy, but the safety of the vaccines. And so are you seeing similar reassurances in terms of why people can take a second or a third vaccine safely? No, to me at least. And Fred, you may disagree. We're not seeing any because we have we don't have a whole lot of data yet on the th on the third shot the booster shot there's no warning signs that are out there but there is concern um the two 
top scientists at the FDA who uh, have resigned, they haven't yet left office, um, they signed a letter that was published in Lancet, and it was expressing their concern that we have not, we do not yet have enough safety data on the third shot for specifically, they re were referring to the, the Pfizer third shot, to be able to make the, the large blanket recommendations that um, uh, Gail Walensky made last night. Uh, they did not dispute the benefit of a third shot for immunocompromised or for people who are relatively immunocompromised, such as the uh, people greater than 65 or people with significant underlying medical issues. Um, they didn't dispute that, but they said that they have, they have significant concerns, not that there is any evidence of, of safety problems, but just that we haven't proven that there are not safety problems for the general population, the 18 to 64-year-olds who did not have have underlying um, issues with immunity. Uh, they just don't see the data there yet to support that. But the good news is uh, for the two doses, both from the Moderna and Pfizer, the number of, of significant side effects is infinitesimal. Uh, I, I don't know, Bill, you would know better than me, but of all the vaccines that I've encountered, uh, these two seem to be the safest. I, I, I agree completely. Yeah, no, the, exactly. The The only issue has been that um, with the mRNA vaccine, well, a couple of issues, and we've talked about them before. With the Pfizer, there is the issue with blood clots. But despite, despite the large amount of press that that got, um, there haven't been that many cases. I mean, yes, there are there, are, there can be blood clotting side effects, but the blood clot side effects from the vaccine are paled in comparison to the just just alone the blood clotting side effects that you can get from the from the disease itself. So um, that that's safe. Then on the mRNA vaccines, the the biggest concern has been the myocarditis that can occur primarily in younger people, primarily in younger males. Um, but even those are small numbers. I mean, we're talking, you know, three digits versus millions of people who have had it. And even when they get it, it's typically fairly mild and treatable with, um, with typical outpatient medications. So we're not talking about big problems. The only, the only issue that is kind of simmering under things a little bit is some immune system irregularities that can pop up that are not well characterized and they're not homogenous at all. But there does seem to be a, a slight increase in various types of immune system disorders, generally, generally time limited, um, you know, on the order of weeks to a month or two. Um, but that's what the concern is. They want to get that data um, a little more detailed for the third shot, since all of these things seem to happen after the second shot. Uh, but we're going to have that data here before too long, whether we like it or not. Bill, with regards to thrombosis, did you mean the J&J &J, or were you referring to the Moderna and Pfizer? No, I was talking to, I, did, if I misspoke, I'm sorry, I'm referring to J&J. &J. You're exactly yes, right. Yeah, right, right. And then for those internationally listening, the AstraZeneca, different types of thrombosis, but AstraZeneca also had some uh, some clotting irregularities that developed. But again, at low levels that were much, much less than the levels that occurred with the actual disease. Yeah, I agree. I, if I, I've taken care of a number of patients who have uh, had very high D-dimer, which is a measure of ongoing thrombosis, and had 
um, pulmonary emboli that were very serious. So um, it's really a very serious side effect associated with COVID-19 and it has the potential to be fatal. So uh, the vaccine uh, effects are so exceedingly rare. In fact, we know that in intensive care unit patients, if they get a D-dimer over two, they have a 65% chance of either getting thrombosis in their, in their legs or pulmonary embolus. So it's a very high percentage that suffer thrombosis from COVID-19. Uh, moving on, there's another development because many, many parents are worried about school. Fred, you've highlighted the continuing, and I would say the debate that will never stop about masks, social distancing, the optionality of mask wearing, quarantining, differing standards all over the place about facilities and air filtration and circulation and things like that. So many people, you know, rightfully are now very focused on the efficacy, safety, need for a vaccine for children five years, I guess up to 12, since 12 up has already been approved. What are your views on um, the data? What are your views on the advice? And what should people be thinking about who have kids ages 5 to 12? The only significant issue has been the myocarditis, which in the 12 to 18 has has tended towards the younger ages in that range. So this was one of the reasons why the FDA about a month ago told the drug companies that they wanted them to get additional data looking trying to look more specifically at the um, incidence of myocarditis in the younger kids before approving it. So that's what's delayed things. Remember, if you remember, I said, I thought we'd have this probably right around the time school started, um, but it got delayed. I think it's now going to be probably closer to the to uh, Halloween that we have a decision on an approval. I have not seen any data that indicates a, a worrisome level of myocarditis in the young young kids, but they've also been fairly uh, tight-lipped on the data coming out of the studies. Yeah, the indications that I've picked up, but they're all nothing direct, is that it's very, very safe in, in this age group. The other thing they did is they lowered the dose. It's one-third of a standard dose. So, I, I mean, I think that we'll probably see this vaccine available for kids um, at the roughly um, Halloween, certainly before Thanksgiving, I would expect. Um, and that should make the second semester of school much easier to conduct. Um, and in addition to that, the uh, whether it's beneficial or not, one of the groups that uh, Dr. Walensky said will be able to get the third dose of the of Pfizer, at least, is our teachers. So I think that the two of those together will make schools second semester. I mean, I think they're safe now. I think they'll make them make them extremely safe. I agree. I think that will really help. Um, what I'm hearing from parents that have been very careful with their kids, uh, and in Alachua County where I am, they even though they weren't supposed to, they have mandated masks, and the governor has taken away the salaries of the school board, but they, the uh, federal government is paying for those right now. But in, in our area, the big problem is lunchtime. Um, they're eating lunch in crowded cafeterias. 
And that is where the kids are picking up the virus because you have to take off your mask to eat. And what really should be doing is now that it's cooling down in Florida, I'm hoping that they will eat outside and put out picnic tables because that would be far more effective and safer. I'm reminded of the old Pogo cartoon. Uh, We've met the enemy and he is us. I'm also reminded of the myth of Sisyphus uh, rolling the rock up the mountain only to have it roll back down. So um, if your kids were in that age group, would you have any hesitancy around uh, giving them that injection? None whatsoever. I I would uh, absolutely have my children vaccinated. I don't know about you, Bill. <laughs> no, and I, I want to. I, I do want to see the rest of the data, but uh, but from everything that I know now, um, assuming there's no surprises, I I agree completely. Okay, so we'll stay tuned there. Uh, just in a couple minutes, wrap up. Any closing comments? Yeah, one thing I'd like to tell everybody is get your flu shot. Um, I maybe not quite yet. I I tend to get it towards the uh, first part of October, but please get your flu shots. Uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb was on TV and he was saying how he thinks that either this next flu season or the flu season starting in 2022 is going to be the worst we ever had. I I don't know that I completely agree with his reasoning, but I I think it is good that people think about getting a flu shot. And Fred, a question that I've been asked many times and I don't have a good scientific answer to, you might, is, is there any reason that people should not get their flu shot and their booster shot at the same time? Uh, there's no reason. I, uh, that has been addressed, I, I believe, at the CDC level. But certainly I've heard from experts that there's no reason you can't get both at the same time because they're very different antigens, uh, very different vaccines, and it should not be a problem. The only thing I had told people was just to separate out. So if you do get side effects, you know what you got the side effect from to separate for maybe two weeks. If I were going to do it, I'd just get them both at the same time. I did get my flu shot, Bill. I, maybe I, if I'd known, I might have waited a couple more weeks. Uh, but the waiver of liability that you sign around a flu shot and some of the you know potential side effects is an interesting one because um, people have been getting their flu shots for obviously generations and generations and there are some side effects but the efficacy and um, the risk reward analysis obviously you know favors greatly getting that shot it's just a reminder that from the time that kids go off to school to the times we get older uh, we've been taking vaccines this is nothing new hopefully the controversy around COVID vaccines will die down and maybe people can remember some context. Thank you guys very much for the further updates. Look forward to speaking to you next week. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.